we want to stay well below 1.5 degrees centigrade, then the Extinction Rebellion claim that we need to be somewhere near zero by 2025 is pretty robust. We, we need to be really zero about now. Hmm. But certainly, the way we're emitting at the moment, we'd have to stop by about 2025. We'd have blown any carbon budget that we have for, mm-hmm. for a good chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade. Yes. So if, from that point of view, the Extinction Rebellion statement of we need 2025 for 1.5, well, that's, that's not far off what the science says, unless you believe in lots and lots of negative emission technologies. run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Welcome back to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Marijn Vandergeer. And I'm Jessica Townsend. And we hope that wherever you are, you're safe and well. We decided to make this episode because the government is telling us that 2050 is a good target for carbon net zero. But we believe that that thinking is dangerous, both for us as human beings and for all life on the planet. Yes, and even the Climate Change Committee here in the UK says that a 2050 target only leaves us with a 50-50 chance of staying below 1.5 degrees temperature increase. And the reason why we really wanted this episode out now and basically as soon as possible is because the government is telling us that 2050 is an adequate target, more and more people are starting to buy into that mentality. You know, you've got businesses who on their websites are saying, yeah, you know, we're going for the 2050 target. And we, we as XR are just sitting there like, no, guys, that isn't good enough. <laughs> you know, that's not like and, putting all of our lives at risk. And when we had Christiana Figueres on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, now she does buy into the 2050 target, but she was pointing out that in order to get to that target, we have to halve emissions by 2030, and we're not on course to do that. And even now, there's a citizens' assembly going on here in the UK about climate change. It's called Climate Assembly UK. But even they are stuck with this government target of 2050, and they are talking about how to get to zero carbon emissions by 2050. So why is 2050 such a problem? Yeah, let's hear what the scientists had to say. During the last rebellion, we sat down with a group of scientists for XR. Kate Jeffrey, a professor of behavioural neuroscience at University College London, Scott Archer-Nichols, an atmospheric chemist at the University of Cambridge. Who else was there? Yeah, and then we also had Peter Spooner, a paleoclimate researcher also at UCL. And we also had Sven, who's a project director for climate change adaptation projects. And they, well, they really painted a rather scary picture, didn't they, Jessica, Mm. of um, how we've already impacted the Earth's climate and also what's to come if we carry on with business as usual. So this is a question for any of you. Um, Extinction Rebellion is really keen that we alter our carbon emissions to try and stick within 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming. Uh, Why is that important? 
so yeah, it's it's a fair point because you, know, you can say one point five degrees doesn't sound like a huge amount of warming, you know, but you've got to think of that as being that is the entire world on average moving up by one point five degrees Celsius, which is a huge and huge amount of energy in order to just do that small amount of change. Every fraction of a degree warmer that you get, the greater the impacts that you have. So just going from sort of 1.5 to 2 degrees, you can see huge changes in impacts on the Earth system and what that will have in terms of food security, in terms of melting ice, um, more extreme weather and what have you. I've we also heard that there might be some feedback loops in that sort of zone. But for people who don't know what feedback loops are, would you mind uh, explaining that? Yeah. We know that carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere, warms the climate, um, and it does that through, through the greenhouse effect. And what we normally say is that if you were to double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you would see a roughly one degree of warming. But we know that the Earth must actually warm up by more than that because we haven't doubled the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere yet. It was 280 parts per million before the pre-industrial time, and now it's about 410 parts per million. Mm -hmm. So we're about halfway towards doubling. If we carry on the rate we're going, we'll, we'll have doubled emissions by 2050. Mm -hmm. And what degree of warming have we've we seen? We've seen about one degree already. That, that's so we, really So scary. we know that there's things that happen which amplify that greenhouse effect that we we add to it just from uh, greenhouse gases. So some of these we know quite so we know the warming due to the greenhouse effect actually really very accurately now. There's a few extra ones like as water vapor evaporates as it gets warmer, water is also a very strong greenhouse gas. So oh. when you add CO2, that initial greenhouse effect due to CO2 is amplified by the water that's there. Mm -hmm. um, but there's other feedbacks which are a bit more complicated and a lot harder to quantify. For example, if you're adding more water to the atmosphere, that's going to change the amount of clouds that you have. And so you think, well, what are clouds going to do to the climate? Well, they reflect sunlight away. So that will actually cool down the climate. So you can have these feedbacks, which actually are what are called negative feedbacks, where mm -hmm. they work in our favour. Work in our favour. Mm. But then clouds high in the atmosphere actually have quite a strong greenhouse effect as well. So you can uh -huh. have these things which can sort of work both against and with to both amplifying mm. the warming and against it. So we think that overall, uh, it's going to double the warming. Um, a few of the ones that people probably will have heard of before are things like as the Arctic sea ice melts, that exposes the dark ocean underneath. And that will cause more warming. We are starting to see that already. The Arctic is warming a lot faster than the rest of the world. But that's not just due to that effect. It's also due to how uh, heat is transported in the atmosphere. Um, what a lot of people on the streets were saying as well, you know, when you're sort of trying to have a scientific discussion with non-scientists, it all gets a bit like, I don't really know. Um, the <laughs> Earth has warmed before, so why are we so worried about it warming now? Isn't it just... So I was just going to cut in and try and explain some of that. Oh, okay. Because it's, it really helps us <laughs> understand why 1.5 or 2 degrees might be a real problem. Uh, we don't just have climate models to allow us to project what's going to happen in the future. I'm a paleoclimate scientist, so that means I study climates in the far past, so before we had instruments like thermometers where we could actually measure temperature. So we use other methods of finding out things like temperature and what the Earth was like in the past. And we have, for some periods in Earth history, have quite a good idea about what carbon dioxide levels were in the atmosphere and the corresponding temperature. Um, so we can use some of these as kind of a reference to understand what the future might look like. 
if we go to certain levels of carbon dioxide or what might happen if we raise temperature. So the answer to your question very quickly is yes, we know temperatures changed around in the past, but that's no reason to be uh, kind of feel safe about what's going to happen. Uh, and I'll give you some examples. So about 130,000 years ago, uh, we're currently in what we call an interglacial period. So we're between ice ages at the moment. 130,000 years ago, we were between ice ages again. So ice ages have followed this fairly regular cycle for the last half a million years or so. And 130,000 years ago, the temperature was maybe between one and two degrees higher than it is today on a global average. And we know that sea level, for example, was several meters higher than it is today. Now, there's some other differences other than just temperature between these two climate states, but that's one kind of scary idea. We're not having much warming in that time, but sea level was much higher than it is today, even with just that small level of warming. If we go even further back in time, uh, so current projections on our current emissions of CO2, if we continue business as usual, put us at like four, a bit more than four degrees by the end of the century. If we go back far enough, we can find climate states which were four degrees above what we are now. And we find that the climate state in that time was very, very different. For example, in the Eocene period, so 50 million years ago now, so really a long time ago, the Earth was between four and 13 degrees hotter. So we don't have a really good idea, but that four number is coming up there and we don't have any Arctic ice. We actually find fossils of things like alligators really far north, even into the Arctic Circle. We have mm. different kinds of plants reaching north into the Arctic. So these, these changes we can illustrate with examples from the past and they turn out to be rather large. Um, Kate? I'd like to, to just add um, something from a biological perspective. So the problem is not just the temperature of the Earth and how warm it was in the past compared to now, but in the past, when the warm Earth has warmed and cooled, it's done so over a very, very long time, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, and the living things that were on the Earth have had a chance to adapt, uh, to migrate northwards and so on. But the changes that we're making today are um, astonishingly fast, like nothing we've ever seen before. So even those and, those periods of warmth and cold that you were talking about that ha have happened, they happen much slower, actually. That's right. Right. Okay. That's right. So a big concern at the moment is that things are changing so fast that our plants and animals can't adapt. Mm. For example, um, because spring is coming earlier, we're seeing some kinds of plants flower and then die earlier than they would have. And the insects and birds that are expecting those flowers to be around when they hatch um, are finding that they've come and gone. So, so we're seeing that species are really struggling to adapt to even these quite small changes in temperature. And one of the things that we're very worried about is not just the effect of the climate on humans, but on the biosphere generally and the loss of species that is, um, is happening from climate change. And that's over and above the loss of species that we're having from habitat degradation and all yeah, of those Yeah, all things. the stuff we're doing to them, yeah, already. Just add um, a specific example, if I might. Yeah, sure. So part of my research is based on corals. And a lot of people listening will know that warm water corals, particularly in the Great Barrier Reef, have been suffering from bleaching already, which is a warming uh, problem. So you warm the ocean by just a little bit, even just one degree, and you start bleaching lots and lots of the corals. Mm -hmm. So like Kate was saying in the past, we've had corals for a very long time, but in the past they've had much longer to adapt. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, one specific example for you. Yes, I think my colleagues have now given a wonderfully comprehensive overview over the present and the past. And if I continue this line now into the future, 
and continue to compare the effects of one and a half and two degree, then for example, with corals, we would have that at one and a half degree, 70% of all of them would disappear. At two degree, it would be nearly all of them. And the effects from a disaster risk and perspective are quite severe also for people in the UK. If I go, for example, on the general number at one and a half degree, you would have a 100% increase and at two degrees, a 170% increase of disaster risk. If you look at water availability on the cities, you would have at one and a half degrees, 350 million people in urban settlements to be regularly exposed to severe drought by 2100. And at two degrees, that number jumps actually to 410 million. Equally, if one looks at food security, another topic, it would have at one and a half degree warming, 9% of global population be subjected to extreme heat waves at least once every 20 years, while that number jumps to actually 28% at two degrees of warming. Yeah, so it seems to the average person, this tiny 0.5 seems <laughs> yes and they're like I would like it to be 1.5 oh, degrees centigrade hotter yeah. in the summer that would make put us a little bit more like the middle of France or something yeah, yeah. that's uh, a completely false well. idea Yeah, Jessica, just listening to these scientists, it's just so hard to understand why the government would continue to push for this 2050 target, you know, as a valid net zero emissions target. We've already added so much greenhouse gas to the atmosphere and raised the Earth's average temperature by one degree Celsius already. We're already observing climate change's impact. So why are people in power still advocating for this stupid target frankly it's obviously too far away it feels like it's a way of delaying focusing to me it feels like they haven't really taken it properly on board yeah but towards the end of last winter i interviewed a world expert on this same subject oh yes so we've got professor kevin anderson who is a professor of energy and climate change in the school of engineering at the university of manchester and on this day, he's come to talk to some civil servants about the climate and ecological emergency. And then he slept all the way out to Walthamstow on the Victoria Line to talk to my local group. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just as much a fan at the end as I had been at the beginning. In 1990, when the first IPCC report came out, and then in the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, there was a lot of optimism about, you know, we can do something. There's, we, we have the tools and the technologies and we have the policy arrangements and so forth. We can, we can make the changes that are necessary. We didn't in 1992, we didn't in 1995, and we had done very little, right? we had done almost nothing by 2000. The emissions keep, kept going up. And each year you think, well, maybe this year is the year we'll make mm. some change. So your optimism you have at the beginning has to, has to increase in the level of optimism. And at some point, you almost have to step off that train. But when is that? It's a very difficult yes. decision. As, as the train gets faster and faster and further and further away from anything you can reasonably do, you're yes. sort of locked on it now. You've yes. now said for 10 years, oh, you can do something. So you, mm. you say it for the 11th year? Well, yeah, you do. And then the 12th year. Yeah. And then eventually you think, oh, we haven't got a hope with this. So we develop other things like negative emission technologies, like some belief in some magical silver bullet <laughs> technology. But it's emerged, I think, partly out of this incremental optimism, a bit like the old frog in the pan sort of thing. You know, gradually turning up the heat. Yes. And we haven't really noticed how far we've moved away from yes. actually being able to respond in a reasoned fashion. And then you know, people like me are sort of there to try and say, well, hang on a second, look, look where we are. But that thing that you just made fun of, the uh, negative uh, emissions technology, 
that is the thing in the IPCC report that is going to save us. And it's not here, it's not being developed, and it won't be there in time. So how did that come about? Because it allows us to produce nice scenarios out of models that have at their core a neoclassical economic growth model. So you can't question that. You can question physics, but you can't question the neoclassical economic growth model. And therefore, you develop everything broadly around that model. Everything's got to fit with a green growth interpretation of the world, even though, you know, Georgesco Rogan's work on thermodynamics years ago told us that this wasn't possible. But, mm -hmm. we, you know, can we part the physics because the economics apparently, or the short-term finance, even more than economics, is actually too important. And so our models are mistaken. These aren't climate models. These are the what are called integrated assessment models. They're the models that you bring a simple climate model together with this, with this neoclassical economic model yes. and some, some sort of theories about how society changes. You put all this together and yes. you have these optimized economic low-cost routes to the future. Yes. And it's much cheaper to rely on the future generations to, to deploy negative emission technologies at yes. some planetary scale than to have some really very significant policy changes today. And the models repeatedly show that because in the models, firstly, they discount the costs in the future. So the costs in the future are much less because they're in the future. Mm -hmm. There's a whole economic process of discounting. And now, secondly, these technologies, we don't really know the cost of. We estimate them as being very low conveniently. And we ignore mm. all the other complications around them. Now, fortunately, people are starting to question this now. But they've, they've, these models have repeatedly been able to say, actually, we can adjust the current economic paradigm, just tweak it here and there, incremental adjustments, some more technologies, no major social change. We've got Chris Stark, who's a really excellent leader of the Committee on Climate Change, mm -hmm. coming out just the other day on the news, saying, oh, no, we don't have to have any pain. We can just do this broadly with technology and some, some sort of gentle nudges. He knows away from the microphone, that's rubbish, as mm -hmm. do many of these people who say that. You know, mm -hmm. Matt Hancock saying the same thing again the other day, that we can just, just we can introduce technology in the future. I'm an engineer. I used to design and build offshore oil platforms. Engineering can do a lot, but it cannot um, overcome problems of time. And we have left it so late. <laughs> that, so we, yeah. need a, we need a space, uh, a, a time machine yeah. as well. As well yeah. as so a... and because of that, 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 that's why we need really profound changes to the high emitting groups in our society today, like obtain our lifestyle. I'm not against us researching. I think we should have a really good, well-funded, detailed program of research into negative emission technologies. And if we find ones that are also sustainable and, and, and equitable and so forth, let's try and pursue them. But let's not rely on them. Let's not assume that they work. And that is where the deep systemic bias in particular groups of these integrated assessment models has developed. And it, it feeds right through to government policy. So the UK government policy is much weaker than it would be based on the advice of the Committee on Climate Change because they are relying on negative emissions being put in by our children and our grandchildren in decades to come. Mm. And therefore, that means we haven't got to have hard policies today. Kevin made really great points about why we struggle to make more ambitious climate commitments politically and economically. But what about diplomatically? And what does our failure as a country to commit to achieving a more ambitious zero carbon society by 2025 mean for the rest of the world on a practical level and morally on an ethical level? Extinction Rebellion. I have another question. If the UK is the only country with very tough CO2 targets, what is the point of that if no other countries are also doing it? There is a, a real problem that we face, which is that the problem is global and the solution to the problem is going to require global action. And there's this, this very famous problem in game theory where people are 
having to make decisions that will only work for them if they can trust that everybody else makes the same decision. And if they can't trust that, then it's better for them to make a less good decision, which sounds paradoxical. But we're in this situation now where countries are looking and saying, we know we need to decarbonize, but we also know these other much bigger countries need to. We can't trust that they're going to. And so until they do, we're not going to risk our economies. And of course, that's ultimately a, a fatal game to play. So what we need to somehow do is to develop trust among all of the nations that every nation will decarbonize, that we're all in this together. And that's a huge challenge for the human race. And we've never faced a challenge like this before. When we've seen it on smaller scales, it's not always turned out well. Maybe a people's movement that starts at the grounds up might help. That is a very good idea. Somebody <laughs> should start with <laughs> yeah. That actually brings me to um, my next question. I know, Sven, but you might be answering this question, so I'll just really quickly ask it. Because what occurred to me about that, this sort of trust and that we need to worry about you know, we'll do this, but they'll do that and we'll all do it together. It feels a little bit like, um, you know, this commitment of the UK to go uh, zero net carbon by 2050. But actually, apparently, if we carry on the way we are now, we will uh, go over our allocated carbon budget in four years time. So why are we even talking about 2050? So essentially, as I understand it, if we carry on and we run out in four years time, it essentially means that other countries can't have any carbon emissions anymore. Is that right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's you're naming a, a lot of things in there. Firstly, I wanted to say that the UK on an, in the international political arena is not the most ambitious country. Um, so, for example, we can see that Norway, that Finland, that they have all made pledges about carbon neutrality until 2030. It's actually peculiar to note that the UK's own environmental agency pledged last week to go carbon neutral by 2030 and not by 2050. So that actually shows that there is a lot more um, space of uh, being ambitious about the general political arena and about pledges. Uh, one could say a lot and a lot more needs to be done. I mean, we're now going for a warming of four degrees if we continue like this. Even if we keep all of our pledges that we've made on international conferences, we will be looking at a three degree of warming. And the last point that you've noted, uh, which is about climate justice, about carbon budgets, it is true. If we look at the trajectories and at the adaptation strategies embedded in the IPCC reports, especially the one on one and a half degrees, then we see that we must decrease emission in comparison to 2000 to two degrees, we would need to uh, reduce it by 45% and therefore like by a date of 2030. And so kind of like it shows that there is there's actually much more potential in that sense. So clearly the 2050 target isn't great on any front, but 2025 is very ambitious. So I wanted to go outside Extinction Rebellion to ask about how reachable it actually is. When I interviewed Professor Anderson, I put this to him, but he also had a very interesting way of looking at net zero emissions. I've been asked this a lot of time by, and often people are trying to hopefully say I'm going to say something bad about Extinction Rebellion. And my point is, I don't, you know, as an academic, I don't care about Extinction Rebellion or not. You know, ask me about the question, I'll make my best answer. If we want to stay well below 1.5 degrees centigrade, then the Extinction Rebellion claim that we need to be somewhere near zero by 2025 is pretty robust. We, we need to be really zero about now, because I think 1.5 is 
I mean, to be blunt, I don't think we can achieve it. And we may be over it already, depending on how sensitive the climate is. Mm. But certainly, the way we're emitting at the moment, we'd have to stop by about 2025. We'll have blown any carbon budget that we have for, mm-hmm. for a good chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade. Yes. Um, so if, from that point of view, the Extinction Rebellion statement of we need 2025 or 1.5, well, that's, that's not far off what the science says, unless you believe in lots and lots of negative emission technologies. Yes. And so... Yes, from a science point of view, if they're, if they're amassed, could I imagine developing a scenario about how we could reduce our emissions in line with that? I can't imagine how to do that. That's not to say that there isn't a way of doing it. And I have tried and mm-hmm. I've been developing energy scenarios for 25 years on and off now. Mm-hmm. I can't see how you do it. But that's no. not to say that, that if we want to deliver on our Paris commitment, the 1.5 part of our Paris commitment, that's roughly the sort of time frame that we mm-hmm. have. Um, and if we were to go with the government's 2050, which yeah. Theresa May committed us to yeah. uh, just before she left, where do you think we're going to end up in terms of uh, degrees global warming? Your it's very guesstimate. Hard. I mean, yeah, you must I mean, be one of the most well-informed people yeah, to well, ask I, this. Oddly enough, I really would, if you asked me that in two days' time, I'd have a better answer. And we've had a paper that's just literally the last three hours, I've heard it's been accepted. And in that paper, we actually analyse in detail the Committee on Climate Change's commitments and the UK government's commitments for 2050 for net zero, not real zero, net mm-hmm. zero. And we've worked out the total carbon emissions from the UK related, relative to Paris. And if the rest of the world failed as badly as we are planning to fail, which is, remember, that net zero report is a failure. That's our conclusion, a significant failure in relation to Paris. If the rest of the world failed like that, then... Without looking in detail, it's going to be somewhere between three to five degrees centigrade of warming. It depends on what other feedbacks there are. And this is one of the problems. Once you get the temperature gets higher, the complications come about the other sets of feedbacks. Now, we, we know that these other, some people call them tipping points, and, and there are lots of, there's lots of language, but sort of non-linearities in the system. Yes. They're not, not even things. Some, some things suddenly start to happen. Um, and they're complicated. They are hard to quantify accurately, hence a lot of them, some of them are already in there, but a lot of them are not included in the main climate models, Mm -hmm. but we know they're out there. Now, the new set of models, what are called Earth system models, that have tried to make a better job of including the feedbacks, tend to suggest the climate sensitivity is higher. In other words, for any amount of emissions we put in the atmosphere, we get a higher temperature rise. Not good news. No. So depending on what, what what this... Sort of collection of this data from these Earth system models turns out to be, and, and given our failure locked into the government's current policy framing advised by the Committee on Climate Change, then I think three to five degrees centigrade is sort of where we're heading, heading if the rest of the world does something, something similar. But it does depend on this feedbacks. And what does three to five degrees centigrade mean? Well, it's not this planet. You know, I think we have to remind ourselves that what we're talking about are changes that are way beyond anything that we have witnessed in humankind. And, and, and actually, when you look back, very, very seldom you see anything like what we've, we've seen. We've had about one degree warming in the whole of modern human time in about you know, 10,000 years. We haven't had, um, I think, our, we haven't had a, a parts per million anything like what we've got now, CO2 in the atmosphere, for, for well, a million, if not, some people say, five million years. So yes. we, are, we are in terrain that we have no real experience, we have no experience of, let's be blunt yes. about it. We have a few very, very long ago historical proxies for some sort of significant changes that we think occurred quite rapidly. Yes. But basically what's happening is we are changing the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere almost overnight. It's not yes. as if it's taking... Is from any I think sort of- half of the carbon um, in the air has gone in during my lifetime. Since the 1950s, we have rapidly increased the amount of carbon that's gone into the atmosphere and into the oceans, remember? Yes. I mean, every time yes. we put, for every tonne we put into the atmosphere, 
about half of that disappears into the oceans and the plants, about, about a quarter, very roughly a quarter into the plants and a quarter into the mm-hmm. oceans. Um, and so and the atmospheric concentration has gone up and up, and so is the concentration of CO2 in the oceans. What's the problem with the idea of zero net carbon? Well, firstly, what it is doing, and it's already doing this, let's be clear, this is, this is what is happening. It is delaying or, or um, stopping us developing strong mitigation policies today, strong policies to reduce emissions today, because it's going to be cheaper for us, to, or not for us, for our children, to, to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the future. So this whole idea of net... We, we're speculating. Uh, yeah, well, that's putting it quite politely. I mean, broadly, the amount that we're putting in is, is a wing and a prayer. Yes. You talk to quite a few of the modelers are putting it into their models, and away from a microphone, they don't think what's going to go in their models is actually viable. Right. You know, I've had this from quite, I have met a few who think it is viable. Most of the ones I've met do not think the huge planetary scale quantities that are in their models of sucking CO2 from the atmosphere is going to be achievable. Now, maybe it is, is, but we don't know The that. trouble is coming. This world that you're presenting me is just a nightmare because it's, it's like there's so much obfuscations mm. and lies and lack of clarity in so many different ways in the politics, but even amongst the, the climate scientists themselves. And yet we're in danger. And as you said, our, our children and our grandchildren are also in danger. Yeah, and, and every species on the planet from this. Yes. Um, we're not in a good position. I mean, we should have started 30 years ago. The emissions this year will be 67, 68% higher than they were in 1990. We have chosen to fail. And that we as a particular group, as my social science colleagues keep telling me, is not everyone has chosen to fail, but quite a significant chunk of high emitting people and the policymakers, and to some extent, the academic community and the NGO community has chosen a particular convenient route, which has not delivered any, let's be blunt about it, any aggregate total emission reductions. We've had some little minor successes here and there, but overall we've completely lost the war or the battle, I maybe you may want to call mm. it at the moment. And, and there's no sign that we're going to turn that around. Well, there are some early signs, which I'll talk about tonight. Some very early signs that things may be changing a little bit. And again, I was, well, perhaps at the beginning of this interview, we discussed this, but also in, you know, in the government building today, in the, in the Department for Work and Pensions, we're t- discussing things and you can see that actually it's not that far away to move from the, from the dangerously naive delusion that we've put up with for years to actually making some significant changes. When you start to play this out, there are plenty of wonderful opportunities out there. Yes. People say, well, everyone's not going to vote for this, but we're not talking about everyone. If you look at someone like the UK, responding to climate change in the way that is necessary to deliver on Paris means we have better public transport that's more affordable. It means the homes that people are living in, which are already in fuel poverty, are much better improved, much better heating. So the quality of the air is better because the cars aren't going to be in the cities. Yes. So for a significant swathe of society, even in a wealthy country, Dealing with climate change in line with Paris is actually very good for them and for their children because it's great for job prospects. No, you have to worry about call centre zero-hour contracts. You're now going to have 30 years of retrofitting the UK's buildings and housing yes. stock. And now, it may be like the war that uh, uh, a united challenge actually makes us have a bit more cohesion than we've had before and more of a sense of community. Well, certainly well. fairness is, is key. There's lots of good sociology work that shows that fairness is key. But there is a small swathe of society and we know who they are. There they are, the professors. They are the senior academics. They are the business makers, the business leaders. They are the policy makers. They are the barristers. They're the journalists. They're the heads of some of the NGOs. <laughs> They're yeah. all in Davos right they, now. Yeah, well, quite a few of them in Davos <laughs> now. But it's, that, it's not just that group. It's, I mean, I look at my, some of my colleagues who don't think they're particularly well off. And you think, well, you're earning probably you know, three to four times the median salary in the UK. Um, so there's a particular group of us. But we are primarily the ones that set the policy agenda and put things in place and then report on them. 
And so we, I'm sort of increasingly sort of saying, well, what we have to have is effectively, you know, the foxes have got to guard the chicken coop. Well, that's quite a, you know, quite yes. a thing to bring about. Yes. And that's why the voices of, well, the voices of anyone who speaks out is important. But the, this is where this sort of thread of hope comes from, to some extent, is that with the youth movement, with, with Greta catalyzing that youth movement, with the development of Extinction Rebellion, these are voices you know, that are... Firstly, quite a wide constituency. I still think that I think culturally they're still quite narrow. I think we yes. need to do something about that, and that's a, that's a challenge. But I think once we recognise it, we then start to do something about it. Nevertheless, across socio-economic groups, there's quite a wide range of people involved. But those voices are are interesting. They are changing the tenor of the debate in a way that the academic community, the NGO community, the policy community, the business community has failed for thirty yes. years. Yes. And so there was some scope for start to come together to think yes. about this. And it's interesting when I engage a lot with councils with senior mayors and so forth, like Andy Burnham and so forth, and Leeds, and the same in Sweden as well. And what they're talking about now is, how do you bring the target through to 2030 or 2035? They're not worried about the, the not zero, as I prefer to call it, rather than the net zero um, in 2050 Committee on Climate Change work. Mm. You know, a year and a half, two years ago, the net zero, well, when the net zero report came out, people thought, this is great, this is wonderful. Now it looks like something out of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the tenor has, of the debate has changed within six months to 18 months. Yes, and driven but by what are we doing? Groups. The debate has changed. The debate has definitely moved. But when you look at concrete kind of policy decisions, yeah, yeah, uh, there's nothing. No, there, there is nothing. There's almost uh, nothing. But it is, it, it is true that when you look at the election, that some of the parties who didn't get in, it's true to say, um, did talk quite a lot about climate change. And then someone else pointed out today, but they didn't get in. That's true, they didn't get in, but 52% of the votes were for parties that had quite strong climate change policies. Now, we happen to have a first-past-the-post system that doesn't take account of that, mm-hmm. but the majority of people voted for parties that had strong climate change policies, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And we have to remind ourselves of that, it's just because we have a particular electoral system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, no doubt some of the people that voted for the current government also were deeply concerned about climate change, but voted for them for other reasons. So um, I don't think we can say that people aren't concerned. I think people genuinely are concerned, and we're, we're seeing and hearing that much more widely than we were before. After hearing all this evidence about why we need to move so much faster than 2050, it seems insane that the government is still thinking that this is a good enough target. And it's crazy that we're not all running around in a state of perpetual panic. (laughs) We are scientists for exile why people don't get the urgency of this crisis because the only sensible thing to do seems to you and me and to most people in XR that taking drastic measures is the only way forward. There's a lot of things going on. It's um, quite hard to perceive climate change. So it's not like a, a fire or a bomb or something like that where the destruction is immediate and rapid. Um, and we we evolved to detect immediate rapid threats, but we didn't really evolve to detect very slow threats, and so we tend not to fear them. And also, we have a this psychological mechanism of denial, which um, is adaptive because it allows us to uh, push to one side the the long term prospect of annihilation in order to focus on the day to day staying alive. You know, if we panicked about the future, we wouldn't feed our children today and you know then there would be no hope type of thing and so mm. so i think you know we have this these psychological mechanisms that just stop us 
thinking about it and um, and make it very easy for us to sort of slip into comforting thoughts like technology will solve it or something like that. And mm. so I think that's a really big part of it. And then, of course, um, there's a lot of just hiding of the evidence from um, vested interests. Fossil fuel companies have been, you know, not really very honest with the scale of what's going on. And the people who inform us, the media and, and politicians and so on, are not, not always scientifically um, educated and able to assimilate the quite complex data. So I, I think it's um, a lot of complicated things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, humans are very bad at understanding statistical trends and long-term changes. We have evolved to pay attention to immediate threats, as my colleague said, and uh, we overestimate threats that are less likely but easier to remember, like terrorism and so forth. As a result, from an evolutionary perspective, our brains have evolved filters to, in, to filter information rapidly and focus what is most is immediately essential to our survival. So if we kind of like from a, look from a meta perspective at the state of research, psychologists have actually identified 150 cognitive biases that we all share. And some of those biases are particularly relevant to why we are not doing anything about climate change, among which is hyperbolic discounting. This is our perception that the present is more important than the future, mm -hmm. but also about like the bystander effect, about sunken coast fallacies. And these cognitive biases evolve for very good reasons, but they're now hamstringing our ability to respond to what could be the largest crisis humanity has ever created. On the other mm -hmm. hand, we do have like also like uh, the adaptation mechanisms cognitively as well, mm -hmm. because um, we have we have seen, for example, that in small groups, we are very that firstly on an individual basis, we are able to act on it by having insurances or all of those things, but also that you have mechanisms which work in small groups. So there's in psychology something like the Dunbar's number, which basically says that uh, any one person can maintain stable relationships with 150 people. <laughs> After that, social relationships begin to break down, undermining an individual's ability to trust and rely on the actions of others to achieve collective long-term goals. And this is also an extremely important alley for us to, to work ourselves on how we can do something better. Because uh, as you know it very much, uh, XR, we're working in very small numbers and groups and they collectively pull you up because you have such effects such as the mm. endowment effect like social comparison and therefore we're both equipped with the limitations to assess it but also with kind of the long-term vision in order to act upon our own warnings mm -hmm. and something i just wanted to add about um you know why it doesn't feel urgent from a personal point of view you think about a 2050 target which is the uk's current target for net zero i'm going to be 60 years old in in 2050 that's 30 years away. That's a long, this feels like a really long time for me. And so it's one of the really important reasons why we need to be pushing this earlier target, which Extinction Rebellion is, is doing, is making people feel that urgency much, much more. Yeah. Um, can it be done 2025? <laughs> Sven? I would say that from a from a pure research perspective and project perspective it would be possible that what's lacking is the finance for those transitions as an international community we have set ourselves ambitious targets like staying below two degrees like in the Paris Agreement however we have at the same time torpedoed all of the financing mechanisms to bring about that transition look at the Green Climate Fund which is part of the Paris Agreement it's, uh, they want to have a budget of one 
100 billion in order to do transitions. They have scrapped not even 10 billion by now, which are mostly to cover fund up costs. And they didn't even manage to, to make a resolution saying that they wouldn't invest into, into fossil fuels. So oh. that money from the Green Climate Fund can technically be used to, to, oh. to use for coal stations. And so it is very much a, a, a question also of financing, because from a technological and scientific point of view, that would be possible. But the most predominant argument that we encounter is that it's not at economies of scale yet mm. and that it doesn't bring enough money yet. And I don't know how we should that scientifically explain that to our kids someday. So after hearing all of this, it's just really clear that just because the 2050 target is being thrown around by the government and by businesses who we would usually trust to tell us what to do. Please do not accept this. It is simply not good enough. And we are literally risking the lives of millions of people. And it's not just scientists within Extinction Rebellion who think that. Even such an eminent scientist as Professor Kevin Anderson thinks that these targets are far too soft. And we have, a, we have an opportunity. We have COP coming up in 2021, where a lot of countries will be gathering to set their policy for the next 10 or 20 years. And if we can influence the British government to make that COP really count, like Paris in 2015, then we really do have a chance of changing things. Definitely. And, you know, there's XR groups all over the world. So if they can in turn do the same to their governments, something might shift. <laughs> so we just really hope that this information really helps spur you on even more to stand up to the government, to your government, wherever you are, and demand that they tell the truth, act now, and that we need a citizens assembly to get us to net zero carbon and halt biodiversity loss much much sooner than 2050. The sooner, the better. Thank you for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. We'll have another episode in two weeks' time with a very exciting speaker called Jason Hickel from the LSE, and he'll be talking about post-growth economics. I'm really excited about that one. So join us. She's been Marine Vandergeer. And she's been Jessica Townsend. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Goodbye. run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming whether you like it or not. Extinction.